welcome to Literary Prospects, where we talk to authors and other literary professionals about books, publishing, and the writing life. I'm Kelly Vick, the host of the program, and it's my pleasure to introduce today's guest, author Wade Rouse. Wade Rouse is the internationally best-selling author of 14 books, including five memoirs and eight novels. His books have been selected multiple times as must-reads by NBC's Today Show, featured in the Washington Post and USA Today, and chosen as Indie Next Picks by the nation's independent booksellers. Wade was named by Writer's Digest as the number two writer, dead or alive, we'd like to have drinks with. He was sandwiched between Ernest Hemingway and Hunter S. Thompson. Wade chose the pen name Viola Shipman for his novels to honor his grandmother, whose heirlooms and family stories inspire his fiction. Wade Rouse, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. It's a pleasure to have you on and congratulations on publication of your eighth novel written under the pen name Viola Shipman, The Edge of Summer. Um, your Viola Shipman novels have been very well received. New York Times bestselling author Nancy Thayer says, reading Viola Shipman's novels is like talking to your best friend and wanting never to hang up the phone. And Dorothea Benton Frank, another New York Times bestselling author, says every now and then a new voice in fiction arrives to completely charm, entertain, and remind us what matters. And Viola Shipman is that voice. So with that, um, what can you tell us about the new one, The Eighth, The Edge of Summer? Yeah, it's, it's like The Eighth sounds insane. <laughs> <laughs> It's been a crazy, I'm on a two book a year schedule right now. So it's um, it's nutty, but in a really good way. Um, the Edge of Summer came out in July and it's a story that is deeply personal. And I think also um, a perfect kind of summer read for folks. Um, it's inspired by my grandmother's buttons and button jars of all things, if you can believe it and um, kind of the history and memories I have of that that have stayed with me my entire life. You know, I grew up with my grandmother in her sewing rooms and she was a working poor seamstress in the Ozarks. And when she'd come home from work, she would take a seat at her singer after working all day. And I would join her and, you know, either do my homework or play with her buttons from her button jars. And I always remember just the magical clothes that she would make for me for my school clothes or for my mother, you know, those beautiful kind of bat wing coats. Oh, or, wow. she, or she'd just take, um, you know, blouses she'd find at Goodwill and rip the buttons off and, you know, put pretty ones on it to, to make it new again. And she always looked down at me when she would sew at some point and just smile at me, just seemingly so content. And as I grew older, I started to think, you know, how did my grandma get to this point in her life? She never finished high school. She never learned to drive. Um, and yet here she was, she'd found peace and contentment and happiness with her grandson watching. And I always wondered how she got from here to here in her life. And so that seminal memory kind of always stayed with me and kind of started the, this book. You know, and I told my agent and editor, I wanted to write a novel about buttons and they're like think <laughs> again <laughs> but you know it's a, it's really a beautiful story of a woman who's just turned 40 and she loses her mother too early um to covid i lost mm -hmm. my father-in-law in april 2020 to covid and you know that experience did really 
terrible things to me, not being able to have closure, but it also kind of recalibrated my life as I think it did so many of us and made us ask if we're happy and we're content mm -hmm. with our lives. So the only things her mother left, leaves behind to a woman named Sutton, who's a fashion designer, are her buttons and button jars and Singer sewing machine. And in her grief, she thinks she sees in those sewing notions, perhaps um, a secret to who her mother was, who was always very secretive. And she sets off from the Ozarks to the shores of Lake Michigan, where I live, kind of in search of not only her mother, but herself. And she comes across a fascinating history about the pearl button industry in the US, um, you know, and how buttons came to be, but also she, comes in touch with the, the town's matriarch, which is this kind of blooming, very rich woman who has an imposing presence. And she begins to wonder if maybe that's the grandma she never knew. Um, so it's kind of a beautiful story of self-discovery. And you do get deep, while telling this, this beautiful story, you get deep into the history of the area and of the button industry. Um, in in the book and it's all a lot of very interesting uh, facts how did you do all the research for this i think it's like the weird thing that authors do when you know i was i truly i was walking by one day and i have my grandmother's i have all of her buttons in a in a ball jar on a bookshelf mm -hmm. along with her sewing basket which was beautiful she made it herself and the sun was hitting them and I kind of stopped and started looking at them. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you have an heirloom or antique in your house, I think, you know, it could be a sideboard or dishes, whatever it is. I think we walk by them every day and kind of forget the story behind them and how they came to us. Then I started thinking of that. That's when I reached out to my editor and agent. And, you know, I'm like, I'm thinking a story of buttons. And they're like, mm, not really. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> So I would old. like to hear that conversation. <laughs> I know it's so old, but you know, and nobody stops me. It's just, so old, it's just so old-fashioned sounding. And I started doing research that day. You know, instead of writing my next book, I kind of went down a wormhole, like so many authors do. And I, it just, I really, truly just stumbled across this history of the pearl button industry in the U.S. And before we had, you know, plastic buttons and zippers, um, those are what adorned every outfit that we that a man or woman wore and um this history kind of started in the midwest and the great lakes including michigan where i live and it just one step led to another and you know it's this it's this amazing kind of pop-up industry that happened at the turn of the century and actually became one of the largest employers in the united states around the early 1900s and it was all of these just men who were hired to go into the rivers and lakes and they would take, you know, John boats out and put hooks into the water and these clams would, you know, out of instinct, just clamp on and they would drag them out of the water. And, you know, those shells were used and, you know, put in hot water and boiled to soften them. And then other men would cut, you know, blanks into the shells. And then those little pieces were sent to women who would literally emery board them down to get that beautiful pearlescent button that we see. Oh, and wow. Get holes into them and then take them home and sew them onto sewing cards for like a penny each. 
And those were distributed, I think at one time they, we supplied, the US supplied 80% of the world's pearl buttons. Um, and you know, just the history of that, it was not a safe industry, but it was fascinating that all of these families kind of came together on shores just to make a living. Um, we're often treated very poorly. And that's when I started to think, oh my gosh, there could be, I love a history, you know, what are these things that tell the past and present of families? You know, and I tie them all into heirlooms. It could be charm bracelets or recipe boxes, but how do you kind of weave that in? And that's when I'm like, okay, I got something here and reached back out to everyone. And they're like, okay, now I'm seeing where you're going. <laughs> so that really helped, but it was fascinating. And I love, you know, I'm not a historical fiction writer by any means, but I do love kind of reaching into kind of our recent past to find out how we became the people that we did. And your novels are set mostly in Michigan, where you live now and live most of the year. Um, why do you feel it's important to, to root your stories there? Oh, my gosh. Um, I did not, I think, as many people know much about Michigan before I moved here. You know, I was born and raised in the Ozarks, and I lived in Chicago and St. Louis for many years. And I actually had gone on vacation to Cape Cod. Um, and one of the innkeepers there was actually from Michigan. And she's like, why'd you come so far for beaches? Why don't you just drive the five hours from St. Louis? And I was like, Michigan has beaches? What, what is this fascinating thing you're talking about? And the next year I ended up coming on vacation to the town where I now live, a little artist community called Sagatuck Douglas. And it's it's stunning. I mean, it truly, the west and north coasts of Michigan look like the Amalfi Coast in Italy. I mean, it's towering bluffs and sand dunes and, you know, golden sand. It's undeveloped. Lake Michigan, you know, has those blue hues of the Caribbean. It just was shocking to me to see. And all of the resort downs up, you know, we do this in Michigan. All of the resort downs <laughs> up and down the coast have these fascinating quirky histories um, and are just so quaint. They're like, almost like Courier and Ives paintings come to life. And so I moved here, you know, I sold my first book. I was a former PR director and moved here on a whim without a second book contract, just a total idiot. I mean, just <laughs> left off a bridge without a parachute and have loved it, you know, and I, I grew up and it's probably like you and maybe some of your favorite authors, you know, I grew up loving a lot of Southern authors, um, Pat Conroy and Dottie Frank, Mary Alice Monroe, authors that really have um, and use their environment so richly and deeply, you can kind of feel it, you feel mm -hmm. the humidity, or you can see the Spanish moss hanging. Mm -hmm. And um, it's the same way with Ellen Hildebrand or Nancy Thayer, you know, they do with Nantucket. And there hadn't had not been many if any writers that have really made Michigan kind of that that setting for books and I made it an intention very early on that I I you know the more I traveled throughout the state that all these resort towns really could be mined for incredible histories because I'm a big believer that environment and where we live makes us who we are you know good bad beautiful ugly all of those things seep into our soul and make us the people we are. And so I use, I use atmosphere and environment and setting very deeply. And I have to ask, especially since uh, the edge of summer is set right in your 
town. How many um, of these characters are are based on <laughs> real people? <laughs> let, let me knock the volume down. Um, <laughs> you know, it's it. I'm one of those writers that I I started as a journalist. I wrote four memoirs before I actually switched to fiction. So everything that I used to write has always been based in fact or on people that I know. So that's a great question. I really am one of those writers that makes up their characters, but they're all, I also have to get inspiration from people that I know. And many are based on real people. You know, even the matriarch that I talk about in this town is based on someone here that we all know and love and don't love. And, um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's funny now you get invited to dinner parties and people like, can, you can see them sometimes move away because they don't, you know, they're worried you're going to take something, which I do, or write it down. I'm always like, have another glass of wine. It'll come out eventually. <laughs> Are you worried you're going to get in trouble? <laughs> You know, I don't worry. In fiction, I don't worry at all. I, you know, memoir, I've really, I've been there. You know, I've written some mm -hmm. deeply personal books about family and places where I've worked before. Um, but, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not worried anymore. You know, just change, change enough characteristics that you can slide by. Yeah. <laughs> And while most of the book does take place in Michigan, uh, Sutton, the, the main character grew up in the Ozarks as did you. And there's, so there's a lot of Ozark lore in the book as well. And I was particularly intrigued by the blue man and the spook light. Ah, so I was interested to find out, are those real uh, Ozark oh legends? You're good, good reader. Yes, they yeah. really are. Those are um, growing up in the Ozarks. And I think it might be, this way, especially in more rural areas, um, those are really true things. And so growing up as a kid, like I write about in the book, you would go in search of the spook light. Like I wrote about it, you go out onto this road and it sounds insane now as an adult, but it's, it's so creepily real that there will be a light that will appear out of nowhere um, that is so bright and intense and you um, will go to chase it or follow it and it will disappear almost as if it's as if it knows you're coming for it but we I mean that's what we did as kids we would go in search of these you know these people or or things um, you know and scare yourself silly but oddly enough like the spook light is one of those things that I would say more often than not I saw <laughs> and I, I even went back as an adult with adult friends to make sure it just wasn't imagination and it was there. And they say it's maybe a reflection, you know, from the, the moon or the way the light hits certain things. And it probably is, but it's, you know, those things stick with you. It's like a scary movie. Mm -hmm. I remember my grandmother telling me, I grew up in Georgia, and oh. I remember my grandmother telling me about a similar sort of thing that her parents told her that they used to see like out in the woods in Georgia when she was growing up. And I think it's, you know, those get passed along and they kind of never leave. Um, I, it's interesting. Georgia, I'm sure as a lot, I lived in Georgia one year growing up in a little town called Cedar Town, Georgia. Um, oh, yeah, so yeah. It's, 
so it's, it's interesting. I've been, yeah, the, the South especially has a lot of, a lot of those stories. Oh yeah. And you, you mentioned that you, you have a background as a journalist and sort of started out as a journalist. Um, how do you feel beyond obviously, you know, taking and always listening to what people are saying and taking characters, how do you feel that that influences the way that you approach writing your fiction? Wow, it's a good question. Um, you know, I have to say, when I was switching from nonfiction to fiction, um, it was a huge mountain to climb. I, you know, I started as at Northwestern um, in, in more magazine publishing, and I was really fascinated with more long form magazine writing. That's what I really love to do. And um, kind of cut my teeth on that. And sadly, that's kind of seen that fade over the years. You know, magazines have disappeared and people don't read long pieces anymore. We flip through our phones, but, you know, that kind of mix of creative writing and journalism was really what I cut my teeth on. And I started writing memoir and it was my voice that I heard um, based on kind of copious notes that I'd taken over many, many years. You know, it was that person that was always noting things. And that came very easily and naturally to me. And I, when I switched to writing my first novel, it took me nearly three years to write. And my literary agent kept sending me back to the woodshed over and over and over again. She's like, you know, you're writing about women, three generations of women in my first novel called The Charm Bracelet. And, you know, using a pen name, it's, you know, it sounds very like a literary Victor Victoria, but I had a, I had a great deal of difficulty structuring a novel. You know, I was used to, as I think a journalist and writing memoir, it's what I, I kind of call, I puzzle piece things together. I kind of wrote more essay style and then put those together. I knew how I wanted to fit those pieces. Mm -hmm. The novel couldn't be structured that way. I mean, it takes on a very different narrative arc and shape and kind of more of the character introspection that has to, has to play out. It, it was very difficult to make that transition. Um, and then this last year I had also had, I have, have three books published, published this year. And I just had my first memoir called Magic Season came out in May from HarperCollins. And oddly enough, switching back to nonfiction was hard for me because wow. I got so used to writing fiction um, that finding that voice that I had so long ago did not come back that easily. So they're, they're similar, they're, but I approach both very, very differently. You know, I always say as a journalist, I think one of the great things is you learn to write on deadline. Mm -hmm. So you are writing, but you're editing as you go. So that's an incredible skill set, I think, to have, especially as you approach. But, you know, in writing, I, and I'm different than some writers, but I, I just, I write. I don't let the editing part come into play until much later into the end. You know, I, I'll put notes in that just says this sucks in red. <laughs> improved dialogue or this is that would horrible. be all over all my stuff <laughs> or this is this is horrible and I don't but I don't like I don't like stopping that creative flow to go back and 
edit deeply everything I've written that day or week. Um, I just, it's a very different process. And then I usually have a nightmare the last month and kind of going back through the book, but it's just, it works best for me. So you get pretty much the whole book down, like a draft, really rough, and then go back. I do. You know, I, here's what I think happens. I think if you're in a creative flow, I get so, and I, and writers are like this, you get so deeply invested and involved in the story you're writing, you know, I'll for, I'll forget to eat dinner or, you know, you, you know, there's a new rug that's put down that you don't notice for, you know, six (laughs) months. And I think that's a good place to be. I think if you stop, if I stop and Mm -hmm. go back through what I've written every single day, critically and analyze it and you know, parse it and start that editing process, that's a totally different creative piece um, Mm -hmm. that does not work well for me because then I find the next day it's hard for me to get back into the creative flow again. You know, Mm -hmm. I always stop at a place where I know I can pick up again the next day. Mm -hmm. Um, That's very important. And I'm a big runner and an exerciser. And when I, you know, usually after five, six hours of writing, if I go running, kind of the more physically exhausted I get, the more mentally alive I become. And I kind of go through everything I've written that day and I'll come back and take notes, but not edit, um, if that makes sense. It's a weird process for me, but, you know, I just went to a dinner party um, at Zibby Owen's house with a bunch of authors in the Hamptons. And I would say more or less like me, (laughs) you know, they, I think they are very critical in what they are, putting down every single day, um, but just doesn't work for me. What is your typical daily routine look like? I get up really early. Like I like to write, you know, 6.30, highly caffeinated till about this time, till about noon. Um, I quiet is best for me, that quiet time of the morning. Um, you may be tired, but the day hasn't really intruded on you that much. Um, and I started writing when I had a full-time job. It was a long, awful job. Um, it was, you know, I really had zero time and I usually would have board meetings or meetings that would go late into the evening. So the only time I could write was when I, I started getting up at 3.30 or four in the morning to write uh-huh. my first book. Cause it's the only piece of quiet time I had during the day. Mm-hmm. And that works well for me. And then I exercise after we finish, I'll go run. And then I come back and do what I call the business of publishing. You know, it's um, social media, it's, you know, essays or Q and A's that I might be doing. Um, I, you know, I do a a weekly wine and words with Wade, um, Facebook live with other authors who, you know, to talk about writing and prep for that. So all of that other stuff, you know, will go until about six or seven at night. It's a long day. A long day, but I always say it's everything I dreamed up. So it's, uh, you know, it's not like I dread any of it. It's all pretty magical. What was the the road to publication like for you? Um, yeah. For your memoir, your first memoir, and then sort of moving on into fiction. How did, how did you get that first memoir going? And Gosh, you, and I think so many will be like me. Um, you know, I, I grew up in the Ozarks. I was a rural kid. I didn't know anyone or have any connections. I always wanted to write. 
Um, my dad was an engineer. He told me that was never possible, you know, just be logical. Um, mm -hmm. And I hit, I was nearing 40 um, and I was, to get very real and honest with you, and I was very, I was happy in my life, but very unhappy in my professional life. Mm -hmm. I had a very good job. I was making good money. I had, you know, benefits and retirement and all those things that we are told are important, but I was like, just felt dead inside. Mm -hmm. I'd always wanted to write. Um, I had always been writing my whole life and I was writing in this job, but nothing that really meant anything. And my mother um, was a nurse and she was a hospice nurse at the end of her career. And she used to tell me that so many of the people she cared for at the end of their lives were filled with regret. Um, you know, something they didn't accomplish or wanted to do. And my mother, as she got older, used to just kind of preach to me constantly that I could always go backward, but I could never go forward. Um, and that she believed that I was meant to write and that I needed, she just would say, don't, don't end your life with this regret. Don't promise me. Um, and then, you know, my husband got sick of me kind of complaining about my job. And he's like, just write a book. And my mother's like, just write a book. And I'm like, is it that easy? <laughs> because I think so many people, like I believe that there was like the secret golden key that um, was passed around Manhattan that <laughs> only, only a few select people got, and I would never be that person. Um, and a lot of that was just self-doubt and, um, you know, which is a terrible place to dwell. And so I started getting up early and started writing my first memoir, which was about me growing up, you know, in the 1970s in rural America and how hard it was. You know, I had a family that loved me and had no idea. My, my family was largely insane and had no idea what to do with me, but they loved me deeply. Um, and so what do you do with all of that baggage um, that you carry with you your whole life. Mm -hmm. And I was a big, um, you know, Nora Ephron, David Sedaris fan. And, but I didn't want to copycat them. And I had this voice in my head and I just said, listen to that. And so I started to piece these essays together about my life. And, you know, it took me about three years of getting up and writing in the morning until I was kind of pushing commas and periods around. And then you do the research, you know, as a good student, and I'm like, okay, how do you do this? How do you, you know, get a literary agent? You know, I always joke, you write a book that nobody wants to read. You know, you have to get an agent and write a query letter before they even um, take a chance. And I, and I got it, you know, it was like a job interview. They want a professional. They want somebody that can write a hell of a great book, but also a person they know is competent that they can work with. So um, I ended up, Querying, you know, I got all the guides, Jeff Herman's guide, Writer's Digest guide, spent months writing a query letter and, you know, kind of, you know, listing agents and categories. And I reached out to 15 agents and this was right before email, you know, self-addressed stamped envelopes. You know, I always say you pay for your own rejection. Yeah. <laughs> and I reached out to 15 agents and seven of them requested my full manuscript. Wow. Within like two weeks. Yeah, it was a, I put it, I put these query letters in the mail on New Year's Eve 
um, with my mom and my husband on both sides of me at the mailbox. Oh, I love that. And um, I said, here, here goes nothing. And, and my mom said, here goes everything. And about two weeks later, you know, seven agents asked. And within another week, I had three formal offers of representation. One from a huge agency, one from a medium sized and one from a very small agency. And I went with an agent named Wendy Sherman, who I've been with since day one through fiction and nonfiction. And, you know, I had no idea what would happen. And she ended up selling that book. I am not joking in less than probably seven days. Um, and it sold to Dutton, an imprint of Penguin. And that started it. And, you know, it was one, one book at a time. I didn't get a multi-book deal. Mm -hmm. um, I got one memoir at a time. And that was me writing the entire book as quickly as I could after I, because I went nuts and quit my job. <laughs> and not having health care or a monthly salary and, you know, kind of, you know, stockpiling money and going month to month. It was very hard those first few years. And I believe so deeply and one book led to another. And then when I switched to fiction, you know, it was a tough go. I, you know, I started writing for magazines again. I started writing for People magazine. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I always said, how do you keep, I call it extending the runway. How do you get that plane off the runway? Mm -hmm. And these novels um, sounded crazy at first, but they took off. They, you know, they've sold in 21 languages. Um, around the world and are re really resonating. So that's what I tell readers. You, sorry to babble, but I'm a big. No, believer. I love it. It's great. There's no babbling. <laughs> I'm a big believer in listening to your voice and your heart, and I'm a big believer in how do we unlearn fear that we're taught our whole lives. We're, you know, we sit down to write like I did, and you think this is going to suck. I'll never make a dollar doing this. You know, there are many things I should be doing. I should be focusing on my real job or mowing the yard or getting my kids to soccer practice or get dinner on the table. And really awful things happen from here to here um, that you have to unwind um, to channel that voice and tell that story that you believe in. And once you do that, all the dominoes begin to fall. But it's a hard process because we're taught to fit in in this world um, and take a path that's often easier. And to take that other path is monstrously difficult, but also opens the world up in incredible ways. And how did you make that decision to move in to fiction once you had gotten the, the memoir going and to use the pen name? Um, you know, how did you decide, okay, I'm going to write fiction and I'm going to use, you know, my grandmother's name, which you can talk about a little bit to, you know, as my pen name for the fiction side of it. Yeah. Long story short, um, <laughs> my, my mother passed away and I didn't really find writing about my life to be funny or, um, you know, I felt very unmoored from the world. I think when you lose a parent that you're very close to, mm -hmm. um, you kind of felt like just a boat that's drifting in the water. And that's how I felt. And so I didn't, you know, even talking to my agent, I needed to write a book, but I didn't know what I wanted to write. And I went back to help my dad move into from our family home into a smaller home, which if you've been through that process, it's a nightmare. My dad's a true Ozarks country man. 
-hmm. you know, change does not come easily. But in helping him move, I found in our attic, all of my grandmother's heirlooms um, boxed up. I found her charm bracelets and recipe boxes and quilts and family Bibles and scrapbooks. And, um, you know, as I mentioned, I grew up with my, both of my grandmothers um, and I grew up very close to my, my grandma Shipman. And she was a working poor seamstress never finished high school, never learned to drive. Um, she scraped together change, her and my grandpa, who he was a, an ore miner, um, scraped together change that they saved um, and started a college fund for my mother who became the first in our family to go to college. Um, my grandmother, her entire life, did not want her family to have as difficult a life as if they'd had. Um, and my grandmother was the most ego-free human being in the world. You know, her only demonstrative sign of ego was she vented her pie crust with a big S for Shipman. <laughs> she never asked for anything in this world. She kept her head down. She worked every single day. She never said a bad word about anybody. And um, when I found these heirlooms, it was an emotional time for me and I started bawling. And I realized that my grandmother was never poor. She understood what life meant you know things we've been reminded of these last three years you know it's your family's healthy your friends are okay you have a roof over your head and you have food on the table mm. you know these things that we take for granted she always understood and um i started writing that day in the attic on top of a cardboard box lines to my first novel the charm bracelet because you know, I think so many people maybe would have taken all of these trinkets that she had and either thrown them away or taken them to an estate sale or done something with them. And I saw in these pieces, um, they told the story of my grandmother's life and they told a big story of my family's life. And I thought, my gosh, there's got to be so many other people out there like me who had a deep connection. And, you know, I hadn't read a lot of novels that had characters more like my mother or grandmother, you know, women that get knocked down in life and just get up and soldier on with a lot of resilience and faith. Mm -hmm. So I just started, I started writing that book and I told my agent, you know, and I told her why I wanted to use a pen name for my fiction. And she's like, you know, it's gonna be an odd sell. <laughs> You know, a man writing contemporary women's fiction using his grandmother's name. It's not normal. <laughs> and I didn't want to dupe readers. I wanted them to know the entire backstory. And, you know, that the charm bracelet sold at auction to St. Martin's um, and kind of the world opened up after that. You know, it sold immediately in, you know, Russia and Spain and Italy. And people started to really resonate not only with this backstory of my connection with my grandmother, um, but why I wanted to write these books. Um, mm -hmm. So that's where things kind of, you know, that was eight books, eight novels ago, and things have really just taken off from there. And now uh, you've said that you get to have a hand in choosing the audiobook narrators. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. It is, you know, it's. How, it, I was just, how does that work? And it, it didn't work in the beginning. You know, the first, <laughs> in the first novels, they just they, you know, they would pick someone that they trusted or thought would do the best job. And it's great now. With um, I'm with 
Braden House, which is an imprint of HarperCollins, and it's more of a boutique imprint. And my editor is also the editorial director of the imprint, who I just adore. And she's, her and the audio um, director have graciously allowed me um, to kind of pick narrators that, you know, they that they think I believe will embody not only the character, but also kind of the setting of Michigan. Um, so it's been really lovely. And, you know, with my memoirs, I actually, it was the first time I've narrated my own book. Um, and it was, I changed my whole appreciation of, of audiobooks and narrators. It was a, it was the most rewarding, but nightmarish process of my life to sit <laughs> in the studio with, you know, engineers around you, and then you have editors in your ear, and you're like, with my memoir, I'm trying to bring to life, you know, a deeply personal story. It's about me and my relationship with my father, and the only thing that bonded us was our love of baseball and the St. Louis Cardinals, and it takes place over the last baseball game we ever watched together. But, you know, I have to, you have to bring the book to life, hopefully beautifully, doing accents, you know, Ozark's accents that aren't too cartoonish. And then, you know, any mispronunciation, any spit click, any deep breath, any outside noise, you have to stop and start over. And I, I literally clutched my hand until it bruised for three days in studio because it's just is such an intense process. Um, but it is, and I tell every narrator I work with now, I never understood what you the brilliance that you undertake in doing your job until I went through that. So it's it's been it's a lovely collaborative process, and I feel really blessed that they include me in that. Do you will you be narrating uh, your next memoir? I hope so. You know, I think I hope it's a good I hope it's a good start for doing that. You know, I don't know if I would look forward to going back in studio, <laughs> but there's something deeply personal about. And I think readers have said the same thing and listeners, you know, when an author brings their own story to life, there's something even more deeply connective there. Mm -hmm. And as we have said, uh, eighth Viola Shipman novel just came out. I believe it was your fifth memoir that yeah, just that's a memoir. came out um, and you're on a two book a year progression here how do you keep from burning out <laughs> I joke that the medication keeps everything very easy. <laughs> um you know I feel it's interesting I was talking to my literary agent she was talking to one of her really stellar clients and she said they, they go I don't know how Wade does it um I would say that one, I feel very blessed that the publisher wants this many books and that readers are buying them and, you know, they're really resonating with people. For me, I'm a, I'm very type A, I'm very routine, very ritualistic. So I feel almost better knowing there are projects in front of me than not knowing what's going to come. It makes me more comfortable. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm also just insane, I think. I just, you know, I get up and I get up every day and I go, you know, my next book, my next summer novel, my winter novel's coming out November 15th and my next summer novel is coming out next June and it's due September 30th. And I'm about halfway there. So I'm gonna start 
really having to crank these next few few weeks. But I feel like when I'm on deadline, I don't shut down. I actually open up. I feel much more productive. And I never have writer's block. There's always a story that I want to tell. Um, so it, it just that this works really well for me. And I love kind of writing going from summer to winter. You know, I'm a big, I'm big holiday person. I love Christmas. You know, I'm that person that puts up seven trees. And um, there's just something about talking, you know, my Christmas novels, I love writing because there's just something for me, I like to touch about deeper human issues over the holidays, mm-hmm. you know, especially grief and some things that we're not able to really discuss openly, you know, mm-hmm. when everything's so perfect and happy. Mm-hmm. So it gives me a really an outlet to explore really interesting stories that are kind of a juxtaposition to the, to the setting. And do you, are you working on memoirs sometimes at the same time as you're working on fiction these days, or do you need to just sort of compartmentalize and how does that work? Yeah, as you can probably imagine, I compartmentalize more. I can't work on more than one project at a time. So it's, you know, it's a one book must be finished before you move on to another. I would say that the hard thing with the deadlines is it's nice to decompress and have those few weeks or ideally a couple of months off where you don't have to think about the next book. And this, this process is as soon as I finish one, I almost have to immediately jump back into another while going on tour for a previous book or doing edits to a previous book. So all of those things kind of you know, come together all at once. And that's, that's, that's what's hard with the schedule. And speaking of the book tours, I mean, that seems like it just a book tour in itself can be a very grueling process. How do you, do you have any like tricks or methods for how you sort of stay calm and awake (laughs) during? (laughs) I'm one of those crazy I love going I, I love going on tour you know I've loved what you're doing mm-hmm. and what so many authors have done with podcasts has been a real silver lining of what's happened over during COVID mm-hmm. you know and I don't think that'll ever go away um, this has been kind of a necessary and beautiful lifeline to readers that's that's sprung up and it's been amazing to see but I like going on tour I like hugging readers I like seeing them I like bringing my story to life for them um that's it's it means a lot to me touring is you know it's a lot of pressure um you know we always want to do events where people are going to show up and buy books but I also want, I always worked hard to make sure that each event is very special as well. Um, it's just this last year was the first time my publisher sent me to the South. So I started actually instead of Michigan and the Great Lakes, I started in South, North and South Carolina and did, I think, six events in five days. Um, but it was, in, it was incredible. Um, and I'm heading out. I've got I think an event in Mackinac Island, which is Northern Michigan um, (laughs) coming up. And then I go to Detroit here in the next couple of weeks. So the touring is going to pick back up as well. And then a big winter tour. But, you know, I always say the indie booksellers, you know, you form lifelong friendships with, they turn the readers out. Um, You know, they've been incredibly supportive over the last 15 years. So 
I really look forward to it. And we, I put a lot of time into planning it, like with Kathleen and my publisher, you know, what stops are going to have the most impact and, you know, where am I going to meet new readers that may not often get a chance to see, see me or. And you're known for, as you've mentioned, you're, you're known for being especially kind and responsive to your fans, um, not only on yeah. tour, but also, you know, you spend a lot of time on social media. Um, with your with your Facebook Live, uh, Wine and Words with Wade, and also, you know, just responding to, to readers and interacting. That's like a job in itself. So how how do you manage that and carve out the time? It's big. I mean, you you know, I mean, on social media, it's an it's a necessary piece of being a writer today. You know, there are a few writers um, that have achieved a level where maybe they don't have to be on Instagram or Facebook or Twitter or TikTok, <laughs> but there aren't many these days. You know, it's where it's where we connect with readers. It's where we connect with people. It's where we can bring our stories to life. You know, I'm a big believer on social media that um, you tell stories about the stories you're telling. So on Facebook and Instagram, you know, I bring every aspect of a book to life, whether you know my mother's buttons and showing pictures of her sewing machine or talking about growing up in her sewing rooms um it'll be the same way with the holidays but it takes an inordinate amount of time to respond to each and every person and that said there's a million other things these people could be doing mm -hmm. besides following wade rouse or viola shipman or watching your podcast there are a million other things and books that they could be reading besides Wade Rouse and Viola Shipman. So when they reach out or try to connect, I think the least that I can do is to personally connect with them and say thank you or ask how their day is going or what the book meant to them and be as genuine as I can. It's the same when people show up at a book event. Um, I'm not one of those authors that'll just scratch a signature and move on. I want to talk to someone. I want to thank them. I want to write a personal message to them in every book that they buy. Um, because they could not have come to the event. They're, again, they're busy, we're all busy people with families and jobs and lives, and they could be doing anything but taking time to read one of my books or reach out. So the least I can do is is reciprocate that with kindness. Um, you know, I'm a big believer in that. You know, the world is a tough place. And mm -hmm. I'm a big believer in that ripple effect of kindness. You know, going out, it makes a wave. Um, the same thing if you're not so nice, that has a terrible impact on people. So um, I always tell people, especially on social media, if you show goodness and kindness, that will come back. What are you reading right now? My gosh, it's I just I got all asked your free this time that you have. <laughs> I know I got asked this question in the Hamptons and by authors, and I was mortified because I'm like I have, you know, I haven't had a chance to read much of anything, and I picked up about a dozen books at this authors' night event that I'm looking forward to reading. But um, you know, I do as you know, authors get asked to blurb a lot. Uh -huh. um, you know, for upcoming books. So I have been reading a book called um, The Beachside Bookshop by Pamela Kelly. Um, she was very successful as an independently published author and she just signed with St. Martin's, which was my former publisher. So 
it's a it's interesting it's a book about two women and their daughters who um go through a lot of different things in their life and end up opening um kind of a moribund bookshop um and and on the east coast and it's more about how the relationships overlap and why restarting in your life it can be so important and meaningful so i'm enjoying it so far so i've been enjoying that and then i've got i've got a lot of books on my shelf that i'm going to read i've got delia efron's memoir um tia williams novel um she's an um one of my agents clients um and i haven't read that so there's a bunch that i'm hoping to get to do you do you consider yourself a, uh, a the plotter or a pantser, as they say, when you're sitting down in the morning and getting all of these books going? Do you like work from an outline these days, or do you sort of like to just take a little time and see what comes out? I'm, you know, I get I let my characters drive where I'm going. Another, I'm mortified again. I'm mortified authors at at dinner parties. Um, <laughs> you know, so many are such incredible plotters you know before they even start a novel they'll do 50 or 100 pages of outlines of how you know almost like a screenplay how it's going to play out where they want to go how each chapter is going i do that with characters you know i do outline my characters very deeply um i want to know my novels are character driven you know i write about small moments in life so i like to know all their quirks and phraseology and what they wear and you know how they might react in situations before I start but the rest of it I just go by the seat of my pants you know I I always start with a big question that I want answered something that I'm struggling with in my life that I think readers are with as well um you know the edge of summer was essentially led by covid stopped us cold in our tracks but it also allowed us to reset our lives what what does that mean if we do that what you know by not having closure by losing someone how can we allow how can we free ourselves again um that's where i kind of started with this book so i'm much more of a, a pantser but you know my god you talked to like my friend susan mallory she plots the hell out of every book um you know almost every author i know does way more than i do it's just i did that in my old work life you know, I had a boss, bosses that would go, would you write an outline about the outline for the outline? And I'd be like, <laughs> seriously, I, I hated it. Like I despised it. Um, it seemed kind of useless to me. And I, I have one of those brains that retains a lot. And um, I don't know, I just, I work better just kind of going. And so then how do you keep everything organized? <laughs> I... I, this sounds, it sounds truly insane. I am big on bullet points, which maybe is an outline, but it truly is as I write, I'm constantly note-taking on where I want the next place to be. So I, as I'm in the flow, I'm writing manic notes and it looks like an insane person. <laughs> Not an outline, it's just manic thoughts and emotions and ideas that somehow coalesce and to something I hope is beautiful and resonant, but I do better that way. I like just the purely immersive creative process. Now, 
there have been times with my books, if there are um, generational issues and timelines that come into play where, especially early on, my editor will go, what the hell did you do? You know, that we have to, or the, you know, the copy editors start going through and like piecing things together. <laughs> and you're not like, she couldn't have done this. And I try, I try very hard to catch all of that, but there are some times where um, I think that's where for a lot of plotters, they get they get all of that down. I'm just, I just, it's, that's not an enjoyable piece to me. I'm just, I just like to get lost in it and go. Do you use any specific, I mean, do you just put everything in Word documents and folders or do you use Scrivener? I don't, I just, I do Word document and just start. Um, and it is a complete full on mess as you see it progress. I mean, if I showed you, I could, I wish I could show you like You're making me feel so much better right now. <laughs> it just it looks I mean it looks like a train it's like a crime scene. I mean it just is but I but again that's how I work and I this is what I tell writers too. You it's good to mimic writers you admire. That's a normal natural starting process but honestly truly listen to yourself. There's no perfect way to write. There's no perfect way to start. There's no perfect way to get to the end. It is truly, it is channeling this here and listening to your heart and your soul and being true to yourself. You know, we all tell the same stories. It's just how we bring them to life that makes the difference. Um, that's what sets us all apart from one another. And I, I, I encourage authors because they were like me. I, I want it to be like X or I wanted to write like X or I heard they did this in their writing. And once you let go of all of that, that's, that's when the good stuff happens. It really does. That is a perfect note to leave it on. But I do want to ask you my usual final, final question, which is if, when, the Edge of Summer is made into a movie or series. What do you think would make a good theme song? Oh my gosh, that's a great question. Do you know what's interesting? I have one that's the one song that kind of always went through my head. There's an old song called Buttons and Bows, um, which um, many of your viewers might not be familiar with, but it's a really old school song. And it talks about a woman that grew up in rural America with very little, but she dreams of the one day she can go to the city and get all dressed up and be, be the woman she dreamed. And it's kind of the perfect lyrics and, 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 and musical accompaniment to this book. And I'm sure they probably put like Lezo to it or something instead <laughs> in today's age. But I think that would make a beautiful song to, 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 kick, to kick the movie off. Wade, it's really been a pleasure having you on. Thank you so much for you joining too. us Thank today. You. Thanks for joining us on Literary Prospects. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. We'll see you next time.